Hello, and welcome to the SBS Cycling Podcast. My name is Philip Gomes. I am not Christophe Mallet. Some of you may have uh, may become accustomed to Christophe during the Tour de France, but uh, we're back in Sydney. We're no longer anywhere near Paris and lovely croissants and great wine and great cheese. Um, with me today, our usual crew, actually, uh, Anthony Tan. Bonjour. Rob Arnold. Hello, hello. Jamie Finch-Penager. G'day. We're going to talk about the second half of the season uh, now that the tour is over. And discussion points today include transfers. How we love transfers. It's been a wacky transfer, transfer season. Actually, it's been pretty good. Uh, we'll talk also about the Vuelta España, España. And we'll also have a feature. We're going to try doing a feature weekly uh, for our pod. Produced by Jane Aubrey, who will talk to academic uh, Catherine Orway about anti-doping punishments and the kinds of anti-doping punishments we meet out to athletes like Justin Gatlin, who just won the World Championships World 100 meters in front of Usain Bolt. And, of course, uh, it's also related to Lance Armstrong. It's familiar to all of us. How far should we go in meeting, the, meeting out these, these punishments and... Uh, what are the ethical boundaries? Or what should we really be doing here? All this and more on the Zwift SBS Cycling Podcast. Zwift is an indoor cycling platform where you can connect with a global community of cyclists at any time. You can chat with people all over the world, share in group rides, get encouragement from total strangers right on who quickly become your new riding buddies and train harder and faster with competition on a global scale. Check out Zwift for yourself at Zwift.com today. This is one of the most interesting times of the year and probably most kind of fun at the same time, but also kind of frustrating because there's so many rumors, innuendo about who's going where, who's going where. We obviously we don't, don't trade really... on rumors, do we here? We try not to, but you know, you can't help but be seduced by the whole idea that, you know, there's something going on. I want to know about it. Mm. So we've had, we've had quite a few significant transfers uh, in this uh, so far announced um, on August 1st, but we also heard rumors of stuff prior to that. And of course, but Rob, you were, you were at the Tour de France, so yes. you know that there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, marketplace stuff going on during the tour uh, yes. ahead of ahead of the uh, ahead of the August first deadline to start announcing mm. uh, rider transfers. So we've had some significant ones. Mm. Um, Jamie, you've got a list. You had a list of some of those for I, us. Just on the tour reference, I did talk to managers over there, and I said, "So what's the goss?" Because usually, if you say what's the goss to a manager, they do feed you a little bit of gossip because they prefer that you're not trade on rumors. And most of them said, "Not a lot." It's a pretty passive market, and it's largely because there wasn't the collapse of a team or an introduction of a team. So it's just going from one to another. Mm. It is actually just a genuine transfer rather than, you know, some full-scale... Um, like bidding war over Saga exactly. and last, last season, example. that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Anyway, sorry, Jamie. I don't no, no, well, I mean, most of, the, most of the action's been with Orica Scott from the Australian point of view. I mean, we've uh, seen Mikel Nieve brought in... Um, who else? Cameron Myers going to Orica Scott. Uh, Matteo Trentin's a very good buy for them, and they've wow. lost a few rides with uh, Jens Kukulier and Magnus Court Nielsen going out. So Where's Kukulier going? Kukulier's going to Lotto Sudal, Court Nielsen to Katusha. Mm-hmm. Jürgen Rowlands goes to BMC. Haas mm. um, going to Katusha. Mm. That's a big one. That's Nathan Haas, by the way. Had a long chat with him about that the other night. Okay, we'll talk about that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I would suggest one reason why it's... Uh, I feel it's subdued compared to, say, 
football is because football often announce the financial amount of the transfer, such as I think I just Neymar. saw this morning. There's the, the largest transfer in history, like 220 million euros, million euros. So yeah, 330 million Australian. So we don't ever actually hear that in cycling. You don't hear that. Hmm. And I would actually like to know the amount. I mean, BMC always say in keeping with team policy, they don't even say the length of the the contract. I think it's a bit weird. I think they should just say, well, he signed up for two years, one year, three years, whatever. But also the, the financial investment. So at least you then can get a picture of, the market. Yeah. And mm. also when they start really performing again. Yes. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> yeah. no. No one just soft pedals because they've got a long contract, do they? <laughs> no, it's it's true, isn't it? How Like Gilbert on a one-year contract, how good did he go yeah. this year? He was on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, but uh, Haas, let's talk about Haas because that was the one that surprised me more than any of the other transfers mm. that we've seen so far this year. Well, I get, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, because I thought he was a good fit at Dimension Data or appeared to be a good fit at Dimension Data, but... Very much so. I think not. he, I mean, he, he made it, he went out of his way to point out that it wasn't a poor ending to the relationship. Like, he was very happy at Dimension Data. Mm. It's just that the budget's going to be otherwise allocated and he intimated of where it could go, but that's a rumour, so we wait and see if that gets signed um, before we perpetuate it. But, uh, I mean... It was a bit of a surprise because Katusha has such a, uh, a – it doesn't have a big English-speaking contingent, mm. even though it's a Swiss-registered and the official language of the team is English. Mm. So I think – and Nathan's a different kind of bike rider in many regards. He, um, he hasn't cracked the big win yet, but he's definitely shown himself as being a rider who has the potential to hit a big win. So I, I think he was happy to be courted by a number of teams and he had those options, but he ended up with Katusha because they've given him a, a position of leadership. And I think that's a large part of what the negotiations are all about is, you know, what role they're going to give. Uh, he knows already now what races he's likely to do in 2018, you know, pending injury and the like. And that, that gives them comfort and it allows them to train uh, with, uh, with purpose. Um, and, and, and these are all things that, that, that he had on his agenda when he was making the negotiations. And unlike a lot of riders, I think he did the negotiations himself. So that's, he's unique in a lot of ways. But he also talks the talk. He makes uh, racing interesting because he's, of his, his ability, but also the way that he talks about it. He's, he wears his heart on a sleeve. I think a lot of people took some... Uh, some 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 lessons from what he had to offer in interviews after stages of Tour Down Under because he actually talked, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he offered feedback and he explained his numbers, he explained his emotions, he explained that he thought he was all wiped out on Willunga, for example, and then he ta- talked himself into coming back and he finished second. And there's a, there's a lot that Nathan Haas has to offer a team and and... Given that cycling is based on publicity and sponsorship, sponsors need to get publicity, he's an asset to that team. Hmm. The um, Cameron Meyer transfer return of prodigal son to Orica Scott, that was was interesting, a surprise, but at the same time not really. I mean, it seems like it's the best place for him. Yeah, Uh, well... I don't know. It's I would say out of all the World Tour teams, Dimension Data and Cannondale Drapak are the ones which allow for the most individualism. 
uh, within the team. They they kind of like quirky characters, and I won't say Maya's quirky, but he he do, he doesn't fit into that archetypal mold of do this. That's why I found Haas's uh, move to Katusha a little strange because it's quite a regimented setup from my understanding. Uh, but yeah, Maya he's he spelled out his ambitions. It's to win gold um, at the Tokyo Olympics in in the Madison. So that Orica Scott is a team that allows that. And what I think you said you found surprising is probably because Orica Scott are so GC focused and they're just becoming more so. So for him to fit into that, he's not a G, you know, he'll, he'll be a work. He'll be a worker there, but I think he's happy to play that role because of where he's, where his head's at for the next couple of years. I mean, when you're going for Olympic Games in in three years' time, and then you're happy to kind of do a secondary role. You know, that the whole idea of him perhaps becoming a Grand Tour rider, I think that's fallen by the wayside, mm. at, at least until after Tokyo. Well, I think that's pretty clear. I think even, mm. even he said that ambition's pretty much gone. I think, you yeah. know, six-day races, yeah, for sure, but... Yeah. yeah, Grand Tours, no way. I mean, riding Grand Tours, yes, but racing Grand Tours to win or high yeah. GC placing, no. Um, Jamie, the, the the other two Orca Scott uh, signings, Nieve and, um, and Matteo Trenton, uh, what, what do those two signify to you? Uh, well, Nieve is a continuation of their GC policy of um, improving their climbing stocks within their ranks to, you know, um, get get that win in the Grand Tour and... They're improving towards it, but um, this season hasn't been so much of a step up um, as it's been a sideways step. So they need to find that extra bit, extra bit of spice in their lineup to get them over the edge. And Nieve could provide it. I mean, he was he was second. Um, he was the second guy for Froome in the mountains for Team Sky at this year's Tour de France. Only Lander was um, in front of him in terms of the pecking order. And he's been he's been a very consistent performer at Grand Tour level. He's not the sort of explosive guy who attacks off the front and gets a result that way. He's just sets a very solid tempo in the mountains, and I think that's what we'll see him doing for Chavez and the Yates brothers. And uh, Trenton, Trenton, classics rider. Um, he's he was very good at classics this year. Actually, um, performed well above uh, what I think even his Edix Quick Step, um, not uh, Quick Step floors rather. Um, what they thought he would do. And he's taken a number of wins. He's won a stage at the Tour de France before. He's won the stage at the Giro d'Italia. Um, if you remember from last year's Giro d'Italia, came from the absolute rafters to win a stage there and was one of the most dramatic wins of the season. So I think classics-wise, he'll be he'll be in leadership for them in a few of those sort of semi-cobbly classics and maybe even Tour of Flanders, he'll be up there with Durbridge um, in a leadership role. It represents a cultural change too. If you consider the original lineup at Orica or Green Edge back as it was back in the day, there were no Spaniards and no Italians, and you have the arrival of another Spaniard and, and an Italian. So, and also just to see Kirklier, who was part of the original lineup, moving on—that's something different. And uh, I think yeah. there's also a bit in if you can't beat them, join them, because you look at what Azure Desert did. Uh, they try to replicate what Sky did, but they failed you know at the tour because they just didn't have the firepower they tried to implement the same strategy although you know prior to that it was quite in you know the stage uh that port richie port crashed out on you know that they, they were attacking on the downhills but later on 
there was very sky like uh, the, the way they went about things and it's Brailsford not... actually thanked them for stage 18 on the way to the <laughs> squad. He, he told me it was very nice of them to do all of that work oh, and yeah, well... we, we could just ride on their coattails and yeah yeah it was just keeping you know Kwiatkowski and all those other guys fresher yeah. um but and it was because they yeah. couldn't finish the job off mm. Mm. I, I just think it's there's no, what I'm saying is I'm not criticizing the way Sky ride the way they do because it's effective. And one thing perhaps I didn't mention in the blog I wrote most recently was that Sky, uh, even though Froome did a lot of the work, he made the differences himself in the time trials. It was his team that got him to the time, well, at least the second time trial, as fresh as possible. And that's also what made the difference. So, so you suge- so you're suggesting that. With these types of acquisitions, the, the if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing by Orca Scott, mm. that these acquisitions are pointing towards them riding in a similar manner in Grand Tours. We're all going to see teams <laughs> ride. Like, if you want to win the Grand Tour, you need to ride this almost, I call it a passive-aggressive type approach. Um, Rigoberto Uran finished second in the Tour de France. Mm. Yes. Mm. And I, you know, although Charlie Wigalius uh, was at pains to correct me when I said there weren't a lot of teammates around him, I didn't. There, there weren't many team teammates around. around. No, him. no, there weren't. So, no. <laughs> um, in other words, you can finish runner-up in the biggest race in the world without that um, sky mentality. Yes, but you can't control a race no. doing that. You can't. Mm. Um, Defend a lead doing yeah. – uh, so if Iran had been in the lead, he would have faced attacks from left, right mm. and centre. The race would have been split to bits and um, the Like what ju- happened to Aru. Yes, oh, exactly. That was, think, that, think, that was the, the bit yeah. that made the race interesting when Aru was just totally isolated. Yeah, and, and he was far too far back on that stage mm. to Rodez and, um, yeah, was out the, he was pretty much on the back of the peloton when, he start, when they started mm. that little kick up and mm. there was no way he's going to come back from that. So, yeah, I think that shows – that that's that a do, case in yeah, point, yeah. isn't it, Jamie, of one of controlling whereas another one of being able to also defend mm. uh, when in a, a controlling position and that's where Aru and his team failed. So who was the last guy from Orica to peel off before Simon took over? Was it uh, Kruziger? Kruziger didn't have a good race, did he? No, I did, no. He didn't seem yep. to. I don't remember talking about him. Not at all. Turn the race, yeah. Mm. The, the, look, Not the, to say he did a bad job, because a lot of that the, the work is done behind the scenes. Mm. It's not always on the front of the bunch. It's just getting them to the front of the bunch that mm. can really make the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Look, I mean, all of this is, is predicated on having riders on your team who are dedicated to a singular cause. It's, mm. I think, with somebody like Chris Froome in your squad with Team Sky, mm. it's pretty easy, I think, to, to impose discipline on the rest of the riders, aside from Landa, who seemed to get a little bit frisky about the whole thing. Mm. Um, but it, the kinds of riders that, that Orica are acquiring are not the kinds of guys who will say, who are going to try and put themselves in a position like Landa would, or saying, you know, effectively saying, I can win this race. Mm. Right. Mm. It's, it's, and I think it's the same with AG2R as well. It's a, you know, we know that Bardet is, is a clear team leader. So it's not like there are any of those riders who are kind of knocking on the door saying, hey, I'm here mm. on your heels. So I think it would be easier for somebody like Orca Scott to ride that way, knowing that they do have a clear leader in, in each race mm. and for the rest of the riders to fall in behind that. Yeah, a point we haven't actually brought up is how this affects Caleb Ewan and his future at Orca yeah. Scott. Because yeah. 
Trentin, yeah, he can do a job in the lead out train, but he's not a, he's not a last man, and he's not going to add a significant significant amount of power to the lead out. I don't agree. Yeah, well, okay. He's fantastic. He's a very good rider. I think I he's an think absolute he's... motivator. He's an engine. He's got that acceleration. He can hold a pace. He's a perfect lead out. Okay, well, I, I don't think he's going to add a significant amount to the lead out from can... over over a guy like a Luca Mezgek or something like that. Oh. Um, but. Um, in general, most of these signings are geared towards an increasing GC focus yeah, within the squad, which I think you've got to look... If you're Caleb Ewan, you've got to look at it and say, well, when am I going to get a Grand Tour leadership out of this squad? And you've got to say, maybe I'll get it at the Vuelta. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with the Yates and Chavez's both going for the um, victories at these races, I don't mm-hmm. see that there's going to be Grand Tour leadership coming for him anytime soon. And, and actually, even, you know, speaking of Vuelta, looking at, looking at the potential start list, I mean, a lot... Is still to be decided with the mm. with with start list, but um, Caleb's not on the well to start list as far as we know, mm. and we've got three GC guys in Chavez, uh, both Yates brothers, um, uh, Verona. You know, mm. it's it's like where is your opportunity for a sprinter with Orca if, Scott? If Caleb Ewan wins Milan San Remo, he's <laughs> then we'll forget about this discussion. Like, honestly, you know, there's plenty of opportunities still. It's a big full calendar. Mm. Caleb's got plenty of opportunity. No, I think when you send three GC guys, you know, bona fide GC guys to the final ground tour, there is no <laughs> room for us. And you want to support those guys, then there is no no room. I mean, it's not just us talking about it. Let's face facts. It's, Ewan's spoken about it. Ewan spoke about it back in that race in uh, the Middle East. He was he was musing over when am I going to get my And we all picked up on that as well. Yeah. Yeah, so you can sense it to mm. some frustration there. Mm. Mm. So okay. there's still one major transfer I think we're waiting to see now as a result of Alberto Contador announcing his retirement. Uh, um, Aru going to Trek. And the idea that Fabio Aru is going to be moving to Trek uh, Segafredo. Um, that seems likely. Or mm. perhaps maybe Landa might end up there. I think the Maybe ink was pretty much dry on that's what uh, where who going to where, sorry, Phil? Fabio Aru. Yeah. Going, going to, to Trek to oh. replace Contador. So yeah, you're yeah. saying that's a done deal? No, no, no. I meant with Lander. I oh, thought going to Lander. movie yeah, star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so okay. I, uh, I don't know if he's still I don't I, I, yeah. we haven't they haven't made the announcement. No, no, I'm surprised. Why yeah. not hold back? Mm. Keep people guessing. Mm. But that, I think that's what's a little bit fun about transfer season is that it's not just because it, the window opens on the 1st of August, every deal gets announced. Mm. So I was thinking the other day when they started to litter them out, you know, here's one one day, here's another the next day. I sort of thought, why don't they just hit it in one go? There was one team that put them all out at once. Mm. Um, oh, but I'll get to that quick, in a minute. Quick, that's quick, quick. Another, Warren Bargui. That's yes. the major news in the transfer that, season. Well, that was, that the, was most, the one that blew me away. That was, was the most surprising one out of all those moves because he'd done a great job, obviously, at Sunweb and then to immediately announce you're moving to a smaller team in Fortuneo, Fortuneo Oscardo, yeah. Oscardo, Tango, Foxtrot. I don't know. What, yeah. what are they called? Yeah. But, yeah. And, and Sammy Sanchez Oscar. went there yesterday. Yeah. They announced as well. So, I mean, he's, I think he's about 49. But, um, 40. 40. Sorry. But anyway, but uh, his best years are behind him. But still, obviously, something's happened there. They've got some extra dollar. And um, and they've bought very well. I think Warren Bargui is the personality of French cycling at the moment. Okay, everyone loves Bardet, but Bargui as well. No. I think they love um, Bargui more. The French love yeah. Bargui because he, he's got a little bit more 
person. I mean, you just saw his interviews on camera. He's got a, a little bit more pizzazz about him. He, he handles he's, pressure. He's got the X factor. I think he handles pressure a little bit differently than Bardet. It yeah. was amazing when yeah. he won, when he didn't win, but he thought he won, and he was doing the press conference in Chambéry, and then they came over and said, "Sorry, we've looked at the photo finish. Um, can you go away?" <laughs> and he was, "Oh, okay." And he just ducked off. But when he won in Foire, the the cheer was it gave me goosebumps. It was very exciting because it was 14th of July and it was obvious that his, you know, he was the only Frenchman in the break and he had a lot of chance of winning and he read it well and he, he did the U-turn perfectly and he came out in front. And it was, but it was very exciting to be there and it's clear that um, there is a real passion for French cycling in case you didn't know it. Um, we'll take a break from, uh, from our discussion and in the meantime, you guys can listen to... Jane Aubrey talked to academic Catherine Ordway about anti-doping punishments meted out. We'll be back shortly. Lance Armstrong still has an opinion on the world of cycling and a popular podcast to go with it. Justin Gatlin has just claimed a world title in athletics. Does the door ever really close on dope cheats or is it always slightly ajar? Catherine Ordway is a senior fellow lecturing in sports integrity and investigations in the Masters Sports Law Program at the University of Melbourne. Let's jump straight into it. Is it time to update our thinking on penalties for dope cheats? I think it is time to review what are appropriate penalties in doping in sport for a couple of reasons. The World Anti-Doping Agency has been around since 99 and we've had a World Anti-Doping Code since 2003. So we've had some opportunities. What happens when you use a very strict approach and strict liability means that there are very few opportunities for athletes to argue on a case-by-case basis why their penalty should be less. What that means is, is what I call when you're, when you're fishing for tuna, sometimes you catch dolphins. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that, of course, is that some innocent people or people who really are not trying to enhance their performance get caught up in the anti-doping rules. So over the time that the World Anti-Doping Agency has been in place, they've refined their code through a period of consultation with all the various stakeholders internationally, and that has allowed for some flexibility. But what we don't see enough of, I think, is this idea around athlete welfare and looking at athletes and bringing them back into the fold through a period of rehabilitation and allowing them to be part of their community and part of the sport that they love in a positive way and having a positive influence on athletes of the future after they've been involved in an anti-doping offence of some kind. Okay, um, so there's been a lot of hand-wringing over Justin Gatlin's world title at the weekend, if we're talking about things that are happening at the moment. The Americans' manager has suggested the criticism of his win was actually inhumane. Some athletes get a harder time when they come back than others. Is this something that you would agree with? Oh, absolutely that's true. Um, You'll see that big-name athletes have a lot more attention on them and there's a lot more controversy around what people see as a a drug cheat, particularly if they are um, stigmatised for the type of drug that they've gone positive for or, or something or people don't bother to look past the headlines. And I think Gatlin might be one of those um, examples where when there are calls being made for life bans, that this is not an appropriate stick to use because Gatlin had two positive drug tests and the first one 
related to medication that he took for his condition and um, ADHD. So you can't say, I don't think, based on the evidence that the court was provided, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, that that's a true doping case um, if we're looking for people that are using performance enhancement illegitimately. The second case, however, related to a cream which he says that he was applied um, without his authorisation or knowledge, um, which contained testosterone. Now, whether we believe him or not is a whole other matter, but bottom line, uh, he produced his evidence before the Court of Arbitration for Sport and his eight-year ban was reduced to four. So he served his sentence and uh, amazingly, contrary to, to what many um, pundits said out there, that he would never come back. He's been able to maintain the enthusiasm and motivation for the sport to mm. return and to compete very well, clearly, based on uh, his performance in London over the weekend. So should he be tagged a cheat for the rest of his days so that he is never able to get a job anywhere in any industry, so that he is vilified and booed everywhere that he goes. Is that fair? Is that a, a humane approach to dealing with someone who has, in a sense, followed the rules, um, broken the rules and then served, served time, if you like, for the crime? Mm -hmm. So I, I think he is an exact example for why we don't want to be too heavy-handed in this space. Okay. Um, uh, an example from from cycling then at the moment that we're that's in the news quite a lot is Lance Armstrong and his uh, Stages podcast, which was due to have a, a partnership with the Colorado Classic uh, in coming weeks. Now um, we've just learned that USADA has advised the race not to uh, partner with Lance and his podcast. This is someone that is um, has a lifetime doping ban. Is this is that perhaps the um, worst case scenario of the way that we should be dealing with a, someone that has been convicted of doping offences? Oh, I know. This is also a very tricky one because um, Lance is a very polarising figure. And um, from an anti-doping perspective, I can understand why um, agencies such as USADA might say, we don't want this person to have anything to do with sport and to have any influence on people involved with sport ever again. Now, is that a fair perspective? You could take a strict legal perspective on this and say, well, the rules say that you're, when you're banned, you're ineligible from competing and from being an official, a volunteer, and any of those things. So does having media accreditation and commentating on an event constitute any of those items and arguably you'd have to say no. So I think that that USADA may well be stretching the line on this uh, but from a moral perspective then you say well how do we treat people uh, who have had life bans or bans of any kind into the future? Do we embrace them back into the fold? Is there a difference between how people have responded post a doping ban? Uh, do we say that Lance has had sufficient remorse for what he's done, for example, and therefore do we treat him differently? Do we look differently upon someone like Maria Sharapova, who says, I'm very sorry, I never meant to do anything wrong, I didn't mean to break the rules, as compared with someone like Lance Armstrong, who says, absolutely, I intended to break the rules, and I went out of my way to cheat 
and take on anyone who said that I didn't. Yeah. So that's the tricky thing, I think, is that we don't treat people, uh, and that's probably right uh, in some cases, because if you say, well, it would be fine if Lance put his hand on his heart and said, I'm really sorry, I've done the wrong thing, and now I want to make things right and make sure that other athletes compete clean and that we have a positive role model for our children of the future. If you if you were saying that to you, Sada, we may well slightly different space. At the end of the day, does a media have um, a role to say enough's enough and that we should no longer accept a former doper's presence in the sport? <sighs> I think absolutely we do. Um, as, as commentators and, and people involved in the media, I think it's important that we send a message that this is this is a nuanced, complex issue and hitting people with a blunt stick is not the way that you're going to influence athletes of the future. Um, I think that we need to be taking a more humanistic approach and saying, well, this is a sport that people love, they've done the wrong thing, and now we want to try to bring them back in to, to create a positive influence for the future and to try to, to demonstrate that it is possible to make mistakes. And we, we ideally not like people keep, to keep making the same mistakes, but if they, if they have an error of judgment, they break the rules, uh, then we can bring them back into the fold and, and do all the wonderful things that sport is is famous for us. The reason why we get involved with sport in the first place is because of friendship and joy and love and fun and health and fitness. So if we can bring people back in, in that positive way and build communities through sport, then that's a lot better than pillarising people and making them ostracised and vulnerable, depressed and ultimately mentally ill, which is a very sad way for sports organisations to behave, I would have thought. Sometimes you just can't get outside for a ride because it's either late at night or the weather is just horrible or you have other family commitments. The beauty of Zwift is you can Zwift at any time of day for however long you like. There's always a community of friendly cyclists and competitors waiting to take on the roads of Watopia or Richmond where the World Championships were held in 2015. Perfect for the time-crunched athlete or new cyclist. Check it out for yourself at Zwift.com today. And we're back. And uh, let's talk a little bit about the Vuelta España. And I guess a lot of the discussion at the moment uh, is centered around Alberto Contador. But the field, uh, the GC field, at least for the Vuelta, is, let's face it, it's not going to be much of a sprinter's race, is, um, is pretty stacked. Massive. Yeah, I, I think Froome, we have to look at Froome as the favorite, I feel, he wasn't, even though Rob mentioned there was some points of fallibility at the tour, I didn't really feel he was pushed to the brink. Uh, I always felt he was in control. And so he seems to come as good or better at the, at the second Grand Tour as does uh, Quintana. And so he's he's been so close in the past, so clearly it's something he wants to tick off, even though it's not the major, major priority. It would, never will be. So long as he wants to go for the tour, it will always be secondary. But it's it's up there. Jamie, uh, that 
tour of Welta Double hasn't been achieved in, I don't know. Donkey's years. Donkey's years. Yeah. I can't remember the exact date. 1970, in the 1970s, I think it was the last time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Froome is the favorite for this race. I think he will do it. I mean, what are you, what are you thinking about how he'll perform at Vuelta and the possibility of doing that double? Uh, he can do it. I don't think he will do it, but mm. um, he's he's the most likely I think we've seen in a long time of being able to um, complete that that historic double. Um, there are there's just so many other really good climbers though who are going to be on the start list, and I think and as we've seen at previous Vuelta's, there's a lot more attacking. It's not as easy for Sky to be able to control the race because they don't have their A squad there. And it's a very different race from the tour, and I don't think we'll be seeing Froome in red. But I'm, I'll be let's happy see the squad draw. first, though, Jamie. Yeah. I think because that I agree with you because they must have learned from last year when they didn't send a great team around Froome, and he found himself uh, isolated a number of times, particularly at this stage to form a girl or whatever. Uh, so, you know, I think it will be a quite a, a, ver- a sort of a similar type of composition to the one you, you saw at the tour. Not the same names, but the similar type of riders supporting for him. Well, how, how different is it affected by what we were just talking about? Do they start thinking, oh, hang on, we don't want Lander to get any more UCI points. We won't send him along. Yeah. That's the question. Yeah, that is a question. And I think it, yep. it, it's... Uh, well, we know that it happens. We know teams, once a, 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 a move has been announced, then they... But Landa, as far as... A, as them along. Looking, at, looking at the potential long list for Team Sky, or the long list for Team Sky, Landa's, Landa's not on that list. Mm. Um, but looking at the, at the GC guys, we're looking at people like Warren Bargui, uh George Bennett, who had a wonderful oh, man. Tour de France, who we, so all, we all love, George. Obviously, Alberto Contador. Um, uh, Bardet is racing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aru. Aru's racing. And then, of course, uh, there's the guy who's probably the best rested and uh, probably the best placed to take it, to, to take it on with Froome is uh, Vincenzo Nibali, who hasn't raced since the Giro. Oh, Vincenzo. I yeah. remember him. You remember him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, you know, you're looking at, the, you're looking at, this, uh, at, this, at this field. And, then, of course, Orca Scott's got both Yates and Chavez. Oh, wow. And potentially, um, uh, potentially Jack Haig as well. Mm. So they're pretty stacked. So it's it's really looking interesting. And I, I get what you're saying, Jamie. But at the moment, Froome just I think he it's to me he raised he went to another level at the tour, and I, he just looks to me very impregnable at this race. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the Froome uh, we see today because it's he's. There's there's so much cunning about him, and you don't see it until perhaps you know it, it was just so uh, not funny, but you know the way people thought he was a madman uh, going down the Mont du Chat at the Dolphin. They said you could have risked the tour. Well, he pretty much he pretty much put you know people in such an uncomfortable position there, and you know he he doesn't make any secrets. He goes, I I, I train a lot. Going downhill at that speed, doing those, you know, that crazy maneuver that he gets himself into. Uh, these are the things which I alluded to that you know someone like Richie Port needs to improve on, and he's he really is a I complete didn't rider. That comment. I, I I read your column and I mm. was curious why you pick out as though Richie's a poor descender. I I, I don't uh, agree because well I I just saw if you look at 
that video, I think everyone's seen it so mm. many times. And but that's I like think... a microsecond of, of error. That's all. Well, that's what descending well, is, though. Yeah, I mean, it's those it's... microseconds of being in the right line and not mm. making those mistakes. Yeah, and, just and, and being I, put, it's, yeah, no, it's been put under pressure, just as uh, Kreuzberg was at at the Giro. Kreuzberg, mm. you might say, oh, not such a bad descender, but what happens when he's really put under pressure. And I spoke with George Bennett about that descent and he was there and he was up in the thick of it and he said he went past Richie and after that he lost his legs entirely. Mm. So it can be like he was fine, he was he, he said he was frightening himself. Mm. But then he saw Richie on the ground and he basically he lost mm. a lot of time because he 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 essentially sat up because he mm. was frightened. And I think you have to You've got skill, you've got uh, fitness, but you've also got you know, suddenly your mental fallibility comes mm. into play. And when you see something as violent as that, you change your approach. Some do, and some like perhaps through maybe the next days, he, he doesn't like AG2, AG2R, they don't either. So it it depends on, I mean, there's there is so much risk. I'll agree with you on that. I mean, this... The sport is so dangerous; they should be getting paid the multiple millions. Mm. Sorry, the tens of millions, the hundreds of millions that the footballers do, but they don't. For the level of risk involved, I mm. agree; it's, mm. it's so high. Um, but you know, they get paid what they get paid, and and some riders, I, I just with it's not so much bagging out Richie, but just the from his attention to detail. Uh, I think you have to give him a lot of credit for. Mm. I'm surprised about something. I mean, we were talking about the Vuelta and now we're talking about descending, but one thing I'm, I've raised in tweets trying to stir a response is if they're all doing this top tube pedalling, which is, you know, started by Matej Moric years ago, um, why don't they use dropper posts? I asked the mechanic <laughs> at Team Sky this and he said, we don't know. We've never thought about it. But it's they had one on a on a uh, neutral spares bike at the Tour de France, one of the canyons, and it makes a lot of sense. And I ride with one on my mountain bike, and it's one of my favourite all-time cycling products. But if they're all now nestling their ass on the top tube, why don't they have a very simple amendment? It doesn't weigh a lot. Okay. Just going to put that out there. Can someone write in and respond on SoundCloud? Yes, There's never any com- yes. never any comments on SoundCloud. No, it's not. Okay. Could you please put one in now? Um, <laughs> Insert here. <laughs> okay, uh, we're going to close off. Uh, we're going to close off. And look, we'll, we'll we'll talk a lot more about the Vuelta uh, next week. But you should know that uh, we will be broadcasting the Vuelta España 2017 live and in full on SBS. It's the first time the entire race will be broadcast on free-to-air television in Australia. Live from start to finish. Uh, now, what's the cheer? What do you say in Spanish? Aupa. Aupa. I don't know. You say vamos. Arriba. Arriba. Vamos. Vamos. Yeah. Yeah. vamos. I don't know. Um, and that takes place from uh, August nineteenth to September tenth. We're looking forward to it. All the stages. It's a it's a punchy race. There are only two stages over two hundred kilometers. The average stage distance at the Vuelta is one hundred and fifty five. They are late starts every night, but usually around eleven thirty p.m. But there's such punchy stages, and we all know that's going to be very interesting. Um, before that, though, we will have the Women's World Tour of Regatta from Sweden, and we're streaming that only. There's no TV, uh, but Regatta streaming from 6.50 p.m. on Sunday night. And really, give, some women, give the women's bike racing a bit of love, man, because they need it. And if you give it some love, we'll be encouraged to do even more of it. Hashtag Couch Peloton, SBS Cycling. Cycling, that's correct. Um, 
and uh, on that front, I guess uh, we'll see you next time. Oh, I was just settling in. Let's keep talking. No, it's been going for a while. I think no, we'll, no, I think no. we'll, I think we'll stop now. It's good to be now. back in the studio. I think we'll stop now. So Thanks, guys. Talk to you guys later. Thank you.